0: They have planned that are now leading us into a one-world communist government.
2: Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome.
3: The affirmative task
0: we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop.
4: Uh, still jet-lagged from my third trip in five weeks to Ukraine and my days uh, in Kyiv uh, earlier this week. I don't have to tell this crowd that these are historic and challenging times for the people of Ukraine, for the Ukrainian-American relationship, and for people everywhere who care about the future of that great country. The world is watching the drama that is unfolding in the center of Kyiv. The Euromaidan movement has come to embody the principles and values that are the cornerstones for all free democracies. Began on November twenty fourth as a protest against President Yanukovych's decision to pause on the route to Europe has become much deeper and bigger. After blood was spilled by security forces on november thirtieth, the movement also became about justice and civil rights, and Ukraine's desire to have a government, Ukrainians' desire to have a government that respects them, that listens to them, that protects them, and that provides for them. A modern democratic government. That was palpable when I made my first visit to the Maidan on December 5th. When Ukrainians say they are European, this is what they mean. And as one very prominent Ukrainian businessman said to me, the Maidan's movement's greatest achievement is that it has proven that the people of Ukraine will no longer support any president, this one or a future one, who does not take them to Europe. Since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote civic participation and good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine.
2: Hello, freaks and geeks and oddities. And any new people checking out this show for the first time, thank you for taking the time to hang out with me, the odd man. I really appreciate it. This week, I'm going to be talking about a current event. And for the old school listeners, they know I usually don't cover current events that much. But, of course, the whole bombing of Ukraine by Russia is still in the news. It's the second week. And, you know, nobody can stop talking about it. It's all over social media and the headlines. And everywhere you go, people are talking about it. And so, before you listen to this episode, you might want to go back and listen two episodes ago. It was, Whose War Is It Anyway? And I gave you a little bit of information about Ukraine and some historical stuff that I didn't know until I started digging into it. But this episode is going to be kind of a continuation of that. A lot of people are providing some good information about what's going on. I just wanted to kind of do my part because I have been doing a deep dive on it, trying to understand for myself. And you have to remember, too, propaganda was pretty much invented for times of war, and in times of war, it increases tenfold. So there's all kinds of things being thrown about on social media and in the mainstream news, and I have to believe that much of it is just total and complete BS. We know it's been admitted now that the ghost of Kiev was B.S. I heard on conservative talk radio the other day, they said Russia had just bombed Kiev and the mayor was killed handing out medicine and food to poor people. Now, if that's true, it's absolutely horrible, but it sounded like so much B.S. to me. It really sounded like propaganda, and we're hearing all these stories that's going to tug on our heartstrings, and I have to go back again to us being told that during the first Gulf War, as an excuse to go into the Gulf War, that babies were being thrown out of incubators by Iraqi soldiers. And it's always something. It's always a false flag or a lie, like the Gulf of Tonkin. And even going back to Pearl Harbor, as I mentioned in the first episode, we know that there was a lot more to that whole thing. We know that FDR and the administration knew that there was going to be an attack. And he stood down. They stood down, didn't inform the admiral and the general in charge. So it's just horrible, horrible that we have to deal with these kinds of deceptions, but we do. It's part of it. So, I just wanted to kind of provide some information and again, if you guys are interested, hopefully you can take what you learned here and look deeper at the subject and maybe even find out things that I don't know because I certainly don't pretend to be an expert. It's kind of hard for me when I see people on social media just raging and saying all kinds of crazy things because I know that average Americans don't even take the time to really understand national politics beyond the kind of high school popularity contest level of elections, let alone like actually look deeply into geopolitics and history. But they still act out and they still say things without knowing any basis for even recent history or recent actions concerning whatever they're talking about. So it's the act of being enraged more than actually caring about the situation. You know, of course, we all want to feel like we belong to something and we all virtue signal to a degree, but it's just out of control right now. And, you know, when people don't know the situation, they don't know the history, They basically are just susceptible to whatever their favorite talking heads tell them, and that's what they believe, and then they go out and they regurgitate it, and they're really, really passionate and emotional about it. And in times of war, we should be emotional, because people's lives are on the line. Innocent men, women, and children will be killed. Their lives will be disrupted. People will be injured, and the places they work, their livelihood will be destroyed. Many will be displaced. Many refugees will be created. That affects other places around the world, of course. So I thought the other day I would listen to a few minutes of conservative radio. I actually listened to about an hour. And honestly, it was at least 30 minutes of Big Pharma commercials and then 30 minutes of pure pro-war propaganda. It was the Gordon Deal show. And I heard one guy on there, it wasn't Gordon Deal, it was somebody else, and he basically said this I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost word for word. The situation we're in is there's a crazy psycho in Russia who wanted Ukraine for himself, and now the world is at war with him. No historical perspective. Nothing about NATO and its bases being on the borders of Russia. It was just all the same stuff. And so I realized that conservative radio is saying the exact same things that the Democrat corporate media are saying. So they finally found a way to unite. And it reminded me of Chris Hedges and his book, which says, War gives us meaning. And it really does. It's the only thing that brings us together. It's bad because people don't even know what's going on, really. You know, like I said, they don't know their own politics, they don't know national politics, they don't know local politics most of the time, and I'm guilty of that sometimes myself, but they really, really have no clue about geopolitics and what's going on in other countries and what their government is doing and has done in other countries, like we learned on the first episode, and what they're doing right now all across the world, even in Somalia. So it's disappointing, it's infuriating. It's heartbreaking. You know, you see that the Ukrainian people are caught in the middle, but now the Russian people are caught in the middle as well because we see all these outcries to punish regular Russian people, whether it's Visa and MasterCard stopping any transactions for Russian citizens or all these woke companies doing similar things and pulling their merchandise from Russia or stopping trade from Russia or this, that, and the other. And then people are saying stuff like, well, if the Russian people don't turn against their government and let them know they shouldn't be doing this, then they're accomplices. And I think, well, if you think that Putin is a dictator like Hitler, why would you expect his people to turn against him? Because they would be instantly massacred. So it doesn't make sense on its face, of course. Why would we blame everyday Russian people? We can't control our own government. These are some of the same people, by the way, many of the same people who, again, hated Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, all those guys for the war on terror, you know, going into Afghanistan and Iraq. And then, of course, Obama gets in, Hillary, Biden, Obama, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and continuing all the Bush policies. And they didn't say a word, even praising him and praising the regime for going into Libya and Syria and all that stuff. So, you've got two pro-war parties. And, you know, with the Yemeni thing, that was Obama and started under Obama, helping the Saudis in Yemen, the genocide in Yemen, by the way, and selling the Saudis a ton of weapons. Well, here comes Trump continuing the same policies. And the Democrats wouldn't say a thing about it because they knew that Obama did the exact same thing. So if somebody said, look at what Trump's doing, selling these weapons to the Saudis and helping in the Yemen genocide, then they would bring up, well, Obama did it too. So you've really got two pro-war parties. It's not just the top politicians anymore. It's the people as well. And they are bloodthirsty and they are saying things like, we need to just go in." full bore world war three and attack russia and on the other side you've got crazy right-wingers too who somehow went from we cannot trust the government we cannot trust the media it's fake news they're lying to us about trump they're lying to us about covid all of a sudden to well we need to go in and get putin because the media is telling us to it's just insane how people are so easily manipulated and don't even think a second about it. I mean, it's, it's really scary what some people are saying online. And who knew? I, I didn't see this coming. I don't think anybody else did. Although those people who pay close attention to geopolitics and especially Ukrainian-Russian politics, people like Ray McGovern, people like that, they've seen this coming for a long time. There's been quite a few people who've predicted this for several years, and it finally happened. So we'll get into more of that, and we'll play some clips. But first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about the deep state's early goings-on in Ukraine. Now this goes all the way back to the 1950s. I know, it's a long time ago, right? So... A few years ago, there was a ton of declassified documents from the Central Intelligence Agency and it showed that in 1953, the CIA had two major programs on destabilizing Ukraine and they were working with Nazis, yes, working with Nazis to fight the Soviets. Of course, they brought in all those Nazis under Operation Paperclip as well, so this is not hard to kind of see how this happened. But they had this program called Operation Aerodynamic. It spanned four decades, and they had all these different resistance groups like the Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council or the Ukrainian Nationalists or the Ukrainian insurgent army, and all Nazi Banderists. They were a bunch of just crazy-ass Nazis, and the CIA was paying them. You think back to Alan Dulles and the Dulles brothers, and how they had this infatuation with Nazis and helped them get away after World War II. But all the way back in the 50s, after World War II, they had these Nazis working in Ukraine, and they were doing stuff like spying, and trying to infiltrate Ukrainian government. And they were placing agents all over Soviet Ukraine. And one thing I learned the other day was that Kiev used to be the actual capital of the Soviet Union. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, they were dropping communications equipment and all kinds of other supplies, ammunition. They had a secret CIA army in Ukraine They had received training in West Germany from the U.S.'s army of foreign intelligence, political and psychological units. Uh, it's, It's crazy what was going on there. They were giving them tear gas and all kinds of stuff and dropping weapons here and there. And eventually another operation came in under Operation Aerodynamic and that was called Capacho. And that was going on all the way through the Nixon administration. And after that, it kind of took on more of a psychological warfare kind of vibe, according to Wayne Madsen. And so these guys were spreading propaganda and doing all kinds of stuff. And the CIA, they set up a company in New York, in Manhattan. It was a printing company where they were publishing all these anti-soviet papers and literature and they would smuggle them into ukraine to kind of poison the well there the company was called prologue and it was under prologue research and publishing associates inc and it later became known simply as prologue according to madsen and so they called that whole thing a tenure And they, of course, produced this stuff in the Ukrainian language. And they referred to it, the CIA did, as a nonprofit, tax-exempt cover company. So that reminds you of a lot of these tax-exempt groups who often work with the CIA in certain aspects. And it was based out of New York, you know? And they got away with that a long time until really they couldn't justify the spending any longer. And that went on until the 80s, though. It's pretty amazing what they were doing. It says in 59, they expanded to the Vienna Youth Conference. They infiltrated it under another operation codenamed l bound That's L-C-O-U-T-B-O-U-N-D. In 68, they ordered Prologue Research terminated and replaced by Prologue Research Corporation. Sneaky guys, you know, they got to keep that money coming in. So there was another operation under it called MH Dowell. Another connecting operation called DT Pillar. It just goes on and on. I'll put this in my show notes, of course. But anyway, these guys were all over Ukraine and then they expanded to Canada they also began working with the Ukrainian population in Canada. That was called, codename, Redskin. They finally moved into parts of Czechoslovakia, Munich, London, Paris, Tokyo. Then they changed the name from Aerodynamic to QR Dynamic. And Madsen says they started linking up with the finance hedge fund tycoon George Soros, particularly. Helsinki watch groups operatives in Kiev and Moscow. He says they were distributing journals and pamphlets, audio cassettes, self-inking stamps and anti-Soviet messages, stickers, and t-shirts. He says eventually QR Dynamic expanded its operations into China, obviously from the Tokyo office, and Czechoslovakia, Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Soviet Central Asia, the Soviet Pacific Maritime region, and Canada. He says going on that the QR dynamic operation also paid for journalist agents of influence for their articles. These journalists were located in Sweden, Switzerland, Australia, Israel, and Austria. So that basically went on into the Reagan administration, countless amounts of money spent on that. And we know looking back, that the soviets had been broke for a long long time even back to when george h w bush was the head of the cia he had team a and team b team a was like the soviets are done for they're broke they pose no threat to us and then team b was like no they still pose a huge threat and we need to continue to spy on them and have all these operations and the money just kept rolling in so anyway i think that uh, that's pretty interesting that the deep state has been fooling around in Ukraine and funding Nazis since 1953, and it's still happening today, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, we know that George Soros has been working in Ukraine since the 90s. Let's look a little more recently, though, at the State Department, and I remember hearing about this back in 2014 because I was listening to the No Agenda show and they were breaking this whole thing down and playing clips. But I'd kind of forgotten about it. So in 2013, in December, there was a speech at the Ukraine Foundation in Washington, D.C., and Victoria Newland was speaking there on behalf of the State Department. She was the Assistant Secretary of State at the time. She is also affiliated with a bunch of these globalist warmonger groups like, of course, NATO. In fact, her Wikipedia says she's a lifetime NATO member. Her husband was a longtime CFR member. I assume that she was as well, but she's not on the roster right now. But she is in the German Council on Foreign Relations, which is called the DGAP, D-G-A-P. And the lady who runs that is a former... CNN assistant. Can't remember her name offhand, but she also, Newland, started the Center for New American Security. It's another warmonger think tank. She's also a senior counselor at the Altbright Stonebridge Group, a global strategic advisory and commercial diplomacy firm based in Washington, D.C., also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which her husband, Robert Kagan, is a huge member. She's a distinguished practitioner in the Grand Strategy at Yale and a member of the Board of the National Endowment for Democracy, which we know from ex-CIA experts is an arm of the CIA. Now, 2013, she's given this speech, She had just returned from Kiev, and we'll play the clip here in a few minutes. She boasted that we had invested more than $5 billion in Ukraine over the past couple decades to promote democratic institutions and a good form of government. The country was founded as a representative republic, at least at the founding or the ratification of the Constitution. In the modern era, all the military-industrial complex has strived to do is democratize all these other nations. Notice they don't try to go in and create representative republics. They try to create democracies. And no matter what you think about the founders, they were against democracies for the most part because they realized that mob rules and the mob can be quickly turned one way or another. And of course, this whole episode is kind of talking about how easily the public can be manipulated into believing something, especially in a time of war. But I just thought that was an interesting kind of thing. Now, currently, Newland is working for the Biden administration. She is the undersecretary of state for political affairs. She also served, of course, under George W. Bush and Obama and gave that speech that I mentioned under Obama. So they were screwing around in Ukraine, trying to control the situation. They actually staged a coup and overthrew the representative government there and placed in their own guy. And how we know that for sure is she was actually caught... Somebody recorded a phone call with her and the Ukrainian or the American Ukrainian ambassador, and she's basically telling him who they want to put in as a leader. And of course, he was a former head of the central bank there. You know how they love to work with the central banks. So you can see what's happening here. We've done it a million times, not we, the people, but they, the government placing the people they want in charge of these countries so they will do what they want them to do and kind of kind of control the situation in their favor.
0: Uh, as I was saying, the, uh, the expression you hear these days is the revolution will not be televised. <laughs> well, that may be so, but there's one coup that was youtube and that's the coup in Kiev on the 22nd of February, 2014. The Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, a protege of, uh, of Hillary Clinton, had bragged in, uh, in late 2013 that $5 billion, again, B as in boy, $5 billion had been invested in Ukrainians' aspirations to join the West. Well, that's interesting. Uh, we know about the National Endowment for democracy really that's kind of heir to the what we used to call the covert action staff the cia Uh, they fund all kinds of uh, people who do color revolution type things okay and we know of about 65 projects that the national endowment for democracy had going in ukraine so after putin bailed obama out at the end of 2013 the plans went forward at a hastened tempo to do a coup in Kiev there had been kind of an arrangement where the president of Ukraine thought maybe he'd like to uh, do an economic agreement with with NATO or with uh, the EU but found out what it would cost to Ukraine and, and decided no he'd stay in the in the orbit of, of, of Russia and so a coup was, was there were There was all kinds of demonstrations on the Ukraine. Victoria Nuland, the assistant secretary of state, was giving out chocolate chip cookies to get the energy level up. And then the Maidan, right, the big square. So uh, on the 4th of February, uh, there's put up on YouTube a conversation between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt, our uh, US ambassador in Kiev, Ukraine. And uh, Victoria Newland says we've got it, uh, we've got it glued now. Looks good. Uh, Yats is the guy. He knows about the central bank. He knows um, the need for austerity. Uh, y- have Klitschko and the others wait in the wings. They're, they're going to be useful, but Yats is the guy. And uh, then uh, she says, now uh, we've got plans for the UN to come in. And uh, Pyatt says, well. You know, the European Union, uh, she, she says, fuck the EU. Uh, we've got the UN in now, and it's, it's going to be fine. it yeah.
4: be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it, and you know.
3: And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together, because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. Fuck the EU. No, exactly. And again, the-
0: no. Was that an authentic conversation? Victoria Nuland uh, did apologize for using curse words with respect to the EU. Uh, she did acknowledge it, in other words, as being authentic. This is the 4th of February. Now, when I learned of that, I said, well, <laughs> it looks like a coup is coming, but at least, <laughs> at least Yats, the fellow's name was Yatsinyuk, at least he's out of the running now. I mean, a, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind would kind of say, well, you know, if you're intercepted in a conversation as being the budding prime minister of a country that's just about to get an you know, overthrown government, then you know, in my day, we don't, well, we don't say, say overthrowing governments anymore. We say regime change. So if there's going to be a regime change, well, it's a little bit too embarrassing to have the the, the new presumptive prime minister mentioned two weeks before. And so, so if there's a coup, well, I wake up on the 23rd of, uh, of February 2014, and I turn the radio on, and there's been a coup in Kiev, for the day before, 22nd, and there's a new prime minister, and he's already been recognized by the United States government. What's his name? Yats. <laughs> Yats. Yatsinuk, OK? So I said, this is incredible. I double-checked it, and then I wrote an article. that said, yikes, it's Yats! <laughs> I mean, how could be more transparent, right? Now, what did he do? First thing he did, he so said, I think it might be a good idea to join NATO. And, you know, I think we ought to ban Russian as an as a, uh, official language. So there were a lot of people who didn't like this coup. And now they're called pro-Russian separatists or all, all they really are, are anti-coup nationalists, okay? Anti-coup, people who want a degree of autonomy in the eastern part of Ukraine. Now, how did the U.S. media play this? <laughs> well, you know, the whole thing was Russia's uh, reacting to this in a very bad way, Putin bad, Putin very bad, Putin ride horse, sometimes have no shirt on, sometimes have no shirt on riding horse, Putin bad, okay? Now, what does Putin do? Well, if you were Putin, what would you do? Here you are. Ukraine, it's really where the common Slavic civilization began. Ukraine, always part of Russia or the Soviet Union, before Khrushchev, for political reasons, in '53, right after he took over from Stalin, had decided, well, you know, let's take... The Crimea and give it to Ukraine. I mean, I get some political points that way, and and so that was a decree, and that's so it's an accident of history. 1953, 54, where where Ukraine was, where Crimea was joined with Ukraine. Now, what's Crimea? Well, Crimea, Crimea hosts the only ice-free, the only all all-weather, all-year naval port for the Russian fleet. Big deal, you know. It was Catherine the Great uh, at the end of the 18th century, same time we were having our revolution, that brought her reign down to and including Crimea, and started the Black Sea Fleet there. Not only that, but uh, although U.S. ships and other ships are able to go through the uh, Bosporus and visit in in the Black Sea, a major naval port there, their entry into the Mediterranean everything else. So Obama, uh, we learned later, convened his uh, national security folks on the 23rd of February 2014 and said, what are we going to do about this? Can you envisage uh, Crimea as part of NATO? No way. If they didn't realize we needed to react to this, well, they don't know anything about our strategic interests. So what are we going to do? What they arranged was a plebiscite. Now, they knew, hands down, that most of the Crimeans would would vote to rejoin Russia, but they went through the motions, at least, and indeed, 96% of the vote said, yeah, we want to rejoin Russia, and so they did, about a month later. Now, how did the U.S. press play this? Well, there was an article in the Washington Post, and it said, headline, Putin admits he had planned well in advance to seize Crimea.
2: Now Newland came out a couple days ago and said there are biological research facilities in Ukraine and she's very worried that Russia may seize them. So that's another excuse I believe to go into Russia and war with them, if we do indeed take that on. But to further help us understand this Ukrainian situation and what led up to it, I want to look at a recent article on Consortium.com or consortiumnews.com, by Robert Perry. It's called The Mess That Newland Made. He says, Victoria Newland engineered Ukraine's regime change in early 2014 without weighing the likely chaos and consequences. As the Ukrainian army squares off against ultra-right and neo-Nazi militias in the West, and violence against ethnic Russians continues in the East, the obvious folly... Of the Obama administration's Ukraine policy has come into focus, even for many who tried to ignore the facts, or what you might call the mess that Victoria Newland made. Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Toria Newland, and the mastermind behind the February 22, 2014 regime change in Ukraine, plotting the overthrow of the democratically elected government of President Victor. Yanukovych, while convincing the ever-gullible U.S. mainstream media that the coup wasn't really a coup, but a victory for democracy. To sell this latest neocon-driven regime change, and I like how he says neocon, although she's worked mainly for the democratic regimes, but who cares, it's all the same thing. But to sell this latest neocon-driven regime change to the American people, the ugliness of the coup makers had to be systematically airbrushed particularly the role of the neo-Nazis and other ultra-nationalists from the right sector, sector spelled with a K. For the U.S.-organized propaganda campaign to work, the coup makers had to wear white hats, not brown shirts. So for nearly a year and a half, the West's mainstream media, especially the New York Times and the Washington Post, twisted their reporting into all kinds of contortions to avoid telling their readers that the new regime change in Kiev was permeated by and dependent on neo-Nazi fighters and Ukrainian ultra-nationalists who wanted a pure-blood Ukraine without ethnic Russians. You can see in the picture, they have their Nazi flag with the swastika, they have their Azov flag, and then they have their NATO flag. He goes on to say that any mention of that sordid reality was deemed Russian propaganda. And anyone who spoke this inconvenient truth was a stooge of Moscow. It wasn't until July 7th that the New York Times admitted the importance of the neo-Nazis and other nationalists in waging war against ethnic Russian rebels in the East. The Times also reported that these far-right forces had been joined by Islamic militants. Some of those jihadists have been called brothers of the hyper-brutal Islamic State. Though the Times sought to spin this remarkable military alliance, neo-Nazi militias, and Islamic jihadists as a positive, the reality had to be jarring for readers who had bought into the Western propaganda about noble pro-democracy forces resisting evil Russian aggression. Perhaps the Times sensed that it could no longer keep the lid on the troubling truth in Ukraine. For weeks, the right-sector militias and the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion have been warning the civilian government in Kiev that they might turn on it and create a new order more to their liking. Now, it's been documented that President Zelensky, who's Jewish, has been working with the Azov Battalion. So, they don't want to talk about those kinds of things. Uncomfortable truths, of course. Then on Saturday, violent clashes broke out in the western Ukrainian town of Mukachevo, allegedly over the control of cigarette smuggling routes. Right sector paramilitaries sprayed police officers with bullets from a belt-fed machine gun, and police backed by Ukrainian government troops returned fire. Several deaths and multiple injuries were reported. Tensions escalated on Monday, with President Petro Poroshenko ordering national security forces to disarm armed cells of the political movement. Meanwhile... The right sector dispatched reinforcements to the area, while other militiamen converged on the capital of Kiev. While President Poroshenko and the right sector leader Dmitry Yarosh may succeed in tamping down this latest flare-up of hostilities, they may only be postponing the inevitable, a conflict between the U.S.-backed authorities in Kiev, and the neo-Nazis and other right-wing fighters who spearheaded last year's coup and have been at the front lines of the fighting against the ethnic Russian rebels in the East. The Ukrainian right-wing extremists feel they have carried the heaviest burden in the war against the ethnic Russians and resent the politicians living in the relative safety and comfort of Kiev. In March, Poroshenko also fired thuggish oligarch Igor Kolomolsky as a governor of the Southeast province. Kolomoski had been the primary benefactor of the right-sector militias. So, as has become apparent across Europe and even Washington, the Ukraine crisis is spinning out of control, making the State Department's preferred narrative of the conflict that it's all Russian President Vladimir Putin's fault, harder and harder to sell. How Ukraine is supposed to pull itself out of what looks like a death spiral, a possible two-front war in the East and the West, with a crashing economy is hard to comprehend. The European Union, confronting budgetary crises over Greece and the other EU members, has little money or patience for Ukraine, its neo-Nazis, and its socio-political chaos. America's neocons at the Washington Post, which are actually neoliberals, And elsewhere, still rant about the need for Obama's administration to sink more billions upon billions of dollars into post-coup Ukraine because it shares our values. But that argument, too, is collapsing as Americans see the heart of a racist nationalism beating inside Ukraine's new order. I know we're getting long here, but just stick with me here. This is important history that we need to know. He says, much of what has happened, of course, was predictable and indeed was predicted. But Neil Kahn-Newland couldn't resist the temptation to pull off a regime change that she could call her own. Her husband, Robert Kagan, had co-founded the Project for a New American Century, or PNAC, in 1998 around a demand for a regime change in Iraq, a project that was accomplished in 2003 with President George W. Bush's invasion. Now, if you look back at PNAC, a bunch of the members were George Bush's cabinet. He actually picked many of the PNAC members to be in his cabinet, and that was no accident, of course. As with Newland in Ukraine, Kagan and his fellow neocons thought they could engineer an easy invasion of Iraq, oust Saddam Hussein, and install some hand-picked client in Iraq. Ahmed Chalabi was to be the guy, but they failed to take into account the harsh realities of Iraq, such as the fissures between Sunnis and Shiites exposed by the U.S.-led invasion and occupation. In Ukraine, Newland and her neocon and liberal interventionist friends saw the chance to poke Putin in the eye by encouraging violent protests to overthrow Russian-friendly President Yanukovych and put into place a new regime hostile to Moscow. That's very important to remember. Carl Gershom, president of the U.S. taxpayer-funded National Endowment for Democracy, explained the plan in a post-op-ed on September 26th in 2013. Gershman. Called Ukraine the biggest prize and an important interim step toward toppling Putin, who may find himself on the losing end, not just in the near abroad, but within Russia itself. He says, for her part, Newland passed out cookies at an anti Yanukovych demonstration at the Madan Square. She also reminded Ukrainian business leaders that the U.S. had invested $5 billion in their European aspirations, declared, fuck the EU for its less aggressive approach, and discussed with the U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Payet who the new leaders of Ukraine should be. Yats is the guy, she said, referring to Arseniy Yatsunuk. I'm sure I butchered that first name. I know the last name is Yatsunuk. Newland saw her big chance on February 20, 2014, when a mysterious sniper apparently firing from a building controlled by the right sector shot and killed both police and protesters escalating the crisis, and on February 21st, in a desperate bid to avert more violence, Yanukovych agreed to a European Guaranteed Plan, in which he accepted reduced powers and called for early elections so he could be voted out of office. But that wasn't enough for the anti-Yanukovych forces who led the right sector and neo-Nazi militias, which overran government buildings on February 22nd, forcing Yanukovych and many of his officials to flee for their lives. With armed thugs patrolling the corridors of power, the final path to regime change was clear. Instead of trying to salvage the February 21st agreement, Newland and European officials arranged for an unconstitutional procedure to strip Yanukovych of the presidency and declare the new regime legitimate. Newland's guy, Yatsunuk, became prime minister. And that's how they do it. While Newland and her cohorts celebrated their regime change, It prompted an obvious reaction from Putin, who recognized the strategic threat that this hostile new regime posed to the historic Russian naval base at Sevastopol in Crimea. On February 23rd, the next day, he began to take steps to protect those Russian interests. So Azov is not the only Nazi-based group in Ukraine. There's several others. We'll look at a couple of them, just so you guys kind of get some information on that. There is the Right Sector, spelled with a K, that he actually mentioned in that article. It says, the Right Sector is a far-right Ukrainian nationalist organization. It originated in 2013 as a paramilitary confederation of several radical nationalist organizations at the euro revolt in Kiev. And We just talked about that where its street fighters participated in clashes with riot police. The coalition became a political party on the 22nd of March in 2014, at which time it claimed to have roughly 10,000 members. There's also another one called C-14, and this is a youth organization. It was formed in 2010, and C-14 is named after the 14-word slogan, We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. From the Nazi David Lane, C-14 is regularly involved in numerous attacks against civilians, students, journalists, lawyers, social activists, foreigners, minorities, and other activists of different sorts. They often conduct hate crimes and often go unpunished. And we'll look at Azov for a minute. That's the main one you're hearing about now. Well, you're probably not hearing about it unless you're listening to some alternate news. But Azov, A-Z-O-V, and you can Google that yourselves. Although I wouldn't use Google or DuckDuckGo even. I hear DuckDuckGo has been compromised. And I've been thinking that because the results just aren't what they used to be. But anyway, Azov. In the Donbass front line is the Azov Battalion trained and armed by the U.S. and NATO. The Azov recruits neo-Nazis from all over Europe under its flag from the SS Das Reich. It is not only a military unit, but an ideological and political movement. It is commanded by its founder, Andrei Byletsky, promoted to colonel. I guess if you're a founder, you can promote yourself to colonel pretty quickly, can't you? But anyway... It is not only a military unit, but an ideological and political movement of which Byletsky is the charismatic leader, especially for the youth organization that is educated to hate the Russians with his book, The Words of Our White Fuhrer. Now, let's look a little bit at what's been going on in Ukraine as far as funding goes. From 1991 to 2014, according to the U.S. Congressional Research Service, the U.S. provided Ukraine with 4 billion in military assistance, which was added to by over 2.5 billion after 2014, plus over a billion provided by the NATO Trust Fund, in which Italy is also a participant. This is only part of the military investments made by the major NATO powers in Ukraine. Great Britain, for example, concluded various military agreements with Kiev, investing, among other things, 1.7 billion pounds in the strengthening of Ukraine's naval capabilities. This program provides for the arming of the Ukrainian ships with British missiles, the joint production of eight fast missile launchers, the construction of naval bases on the Black Sea and also on the Sea of Azov between Ukraine, Crimea, and Russia. In this framework, the Ukrainian military spending, which in 2014 was equivalent to 3% GDP, Increased to 6% in 2022, corresponding to more than 11 billion. In addition to the US NATO military investments in Ukraine, there is the 10 billion plan being implemented by Eric Prince, founder of the private US military company Blackwater, now renamed Academy, which has been supplying mercenaries to the CIA, Pentagon, and State Department for covert operations, including torture and assassinations, earning billions of dollars. Eric Prince's plan, revealed by a Time Magazine investigation, is to create an army in Ukraine through a partnership between the Lancaster Six Company, with which Prince has supplied mercenaries in the Middle East and Africa, and the main Ukrainian intelligence office controlled by the CIA. It is not known, of course, what would be the tasks of the private army created in Ukraine by the founder of Blackwater. Certainly with funding from the CIA, of course. However, it can be expected that it would conduct covert operations in Europe, Russia, and other regions from its base in Ukraine. And let's not forget that Eric Prince is also a Knight of Malta, so I really wonder where his allegiance lies. And you can look into that yourselves. Now looking a little bit deeper at Azov, I know I'm kind of switching around here, but it says it's much more than a militia. It has its own political party, two publishing houses, summer camps for children, and a vigilante force known as the National Militia, which patrols the streets of Ukrainian cities alongside the police. Unlike its ideological peers in the U.S. and Europe, it also has a military wing with at least two training bases, and a vast arsenal of weapons, from drones to armored vehicles to artillery pieces. Outside of Ukraine, Azov occupies a central role in a network of extremist groups stretching from California across Europe to New Zealand, according to law enforcement officials on three continents, and it acts as a magnet for young men eager for combat experience. Ali Sofan or Sufen, A security consultant and former FBI agent who has studied Azov estimates that more than 17,000 foreign fighters have come to Ukraine over the past six years from 50 different countries. Now, I think a lot of these entanglements that we get involved in, our government gets us involved in and gets our military men and women involved in, are more money laundering schemes than anything else. You know, there's no way to know where all that money goes so much of it goes into the system. And I don't even know if that money we're talking about in Ukraine, I don't even think that was including the regular foreign aid that we looked into on the first episode. So I think that, uh, you know, you have to consider as well that there's all kinds of other countries sending things to Ukraine right now. And once again, if you're listening to this, I'm not condoning any violence That the Russians are doing in Ukraine. I think it's horrible. But again, if a country started putting military bases on our borders, you know what we would do, of course. And so NATO is the global arm of the New World Order again, and they are trying to just secure the rest of the world so they can control it. And it's not going to be better for the American people. Because we know that our leadership does not care for the American people. And if you don't know that by now, then there's really no hope for you, and you probably shouldn't even be listening to this. Now let's talk a little bit about Soros and the Open Society Foundation. You know, you hear a lot about Soros in right-wing circles, but you really don't hear a lot of details. And I just think it's good to kind of look a little bit deeper and see what all they're actually funding beyond the headlines. Now, this is the top five revolutions backed by George Soros here, and it says the number one is in 2000, and it was called the Bulldozer Revolution in Serbia. On October 5th 2000, the Bulldozer Revolution. It was a movement partially funded by Soros, and it knocked Slobodan Milosevic out of power. The LA Times actually reported on Soros' role, noting the problems it would cause if he were to get too much credit for his activities. By providing lots of money to already existing but struggling groups, Soros believed to be a pro-democracy group, including the student group Otpor, Soros was able to topple that country's government. It's an accomplishment that Hungarian-born financier George Soros doesn't flaunt. Bragging about it, after all, could just make his global democracy-building mission more difficult. But the multibillionaire philanthropist quietly played a key role in the dramatic overthrow last year of President Slobodan Milosevic. His Soros Foundation's network helped finance several pro-democracy groups, including the student organization Optpor, which spearheaded grassroots resistance to the authoritarian Yugoslav leader. In 2003, at a news conference, Soros actually owned up to his involvement. He said, It is necessary to mobilize civil society in order to assure free and fair elections, because there are many forces that are determined to falsify or to prevent the elections being free and fair, Mr. Soros said. This is what we did in Slovakia at the time of Vladimir Mikar and in Croatia at the time of Franjo." Tujman and in Yugoslavia at the time of Milosevic. In 2014, Richard Poe in Velvet Revolution USA outlined the seven step strategy used by Soros to topple Milosevic. The strategy, Poe writes, is the same blueprint used repeatedly by Soros in other countries form a shadow government, control the airwaves, bleed the state dry, sow unrest. Provoke an election crisis, take to the streets, and above all, outlast your opponents. Now, number two, it was the Rose Revolution. After Yugoslavia, Soros set his sights on Georgia. Though he originally backed President Eduard Shevardnadze, and I'm sure I absolutely butchered that, but Shevardnadze met with Soros' disapproval. Soros sought to replace him in the same manner that he had replaced Milosevic. He prepared his goal to topple the president by sending a young activist to Serbia to be trained by those who had successfully overthrown Milošević. Funds from his Open Society Institute sent a 31-year-old Tbilisi activist named Giga Bukeri to Serbia to meet members of the Optor resistance movement and learn how they used street demonstrations to topple dictator Slobodan Milošević. Then in the summer Mr. Soros's foundation paid for a return trip to Georgia by aught-poor activists who ran three-day courses teaching more than 1,000 students how to stage revolutions. In 2003, the Melbourne Herald Sun offered a basic overview of Soros' Open Society Institute's impact on the Georgia Rose Revolution. Soros backed Georgia's former justice minister and spent some $4 million on a protest movement against the president. His organizations brought in experts in nonviolent revolution from Serbia, gave seven hundred thousand to an activist group that bust in protesters and financed an anti government TV station and newspaper. It worked. Last month, protesters smashed into Georgia's parliament, yelling, and probably correctly, that the president had stolen the elections a month ago and must quit. The president had to flee, and then Soros' man got set up for the leadership. The Georgia foreign minister told French journalists that Soros' NGO groups were not only responsible for toppling the president, but had subsequently became an integral part of the resulting governmental power structure. One cannot end one's analysis with the revolution, and one clearly sees that afterwards, the Soros Foundation and the NGOs or integrated into power. There's a bunch of other stuff. We'll forward to the next one. Number three is Soros puts a radical in the White House. And this is basically saying that he put Obama in. Of course there's a lot of information to suggest that he had a big hand in that, so I won't go into that. That's kind of been done to death. George Soros, a founding father of an Islamist Turkey. In June 2006, while in Turkey, pressing for Turkish membership in the EU, George Soros was questioned about his role in regime changes. It was already painfully clear to many that George Soros had established himself as, in the words of Neil Klar of the North Star Compass, the uncrowned king of Eastern Europe. Soros rejected the claim, but his influence in Turkey is manifest. OSI has been actively studying politics and religion in Turkey since at least the 1990s, and setting forth policy recommendations on these issues. More troubling, perhaps, is that OSI is seeking a new constitution for Turkey based on OSI values. He's talking about the Open Society Institute. Kan Paker, the head of OSI's Assistance Foundation in Turkey, is also head of the Turkish Economic and Social Studies Foundation, an organization lobbying for Turkey's newly elected parliament to adopt a brand new constitution. Now, for the rest, I'll kind of just briefly mention them. It says that Soros causes unrest in Egypt, and you guys can look into that if you would like. It says that ElBaradei and Soros both serve on the board of directors of International Crisis Group, an organization that also has connections with the Democratic Party, including President Obama. So you guys can look into that if you want. Now, on the Open Society website, it says that they just donated... $25 to establish a democracy for Ukraine. That was just like a couple days ago. But they've been working there since the 90s. I think I mentioned that before. Now, George Soros and the Open Society runs a group called the International Renaissance Foundation. Now, a couple years ago, it was reported that they had given over $100 million to Ukraine and various NGOs inside Ukraine. Now, remember again that nato's sister organization is the atlantic council they work hand in hand with nato and the pentagon and we said on the first episode that their donors include george soros's open society the rockefeller foundation rockefeller brothers fund blackrock blackstone google facebook twitter jp morgan microsoft bank of america there's all kinds of them also again if i didn't mention it earlier Soros is one of the main funders of the McCain Institute, which is always pushing for another war or foreign entanglement. Also, the Rothschilds are on the board, as well as the House of Saud, Saudi Arabia. Now, I know that Zelensky is everyone's new hero, both on the left and the right, and he won this Ronald Reagan Presidential Medal of Freedom Award, but let's look at this article here, which I thought was interesting. This was from February 23rd. It said, Soros helped known actor and comedian Zelensky become president of Ukraine. Now, there was a series, a TV series, on Ukrainian television called Servant of the People. And guess what? Zelensky posed as a president. This is by Leo Zagami. George Soros' involvement in Ukraine is well known. His name is linked to the Orange Revolution, and regime changes in the country. Like in Georgia, George Soros acknowledged in an interview with CNN that he actively contributed to the overthrow of former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014. I created a foundation in Ukraine before it became independent from Russia. The foundation has functioned since then and has played an important role in current events explains the financier who established the International Renaissance Foundation in Ukraine as part of the Open Society Foundation way back in April 1990. The infamous foundation, originally placed in Ukraine by the New World Order, with the aim to assist the transition to democracy to a market economy, became a sort of parallel government immediately starting a series of projects in different areas without ever truly helping the country and ultimately giving the role of president of Ukraine, serving since May 2019, to a comedian clown called Vladimir Zelensky, who made his apparent fortune with a Ukrainian political satire comedy television series, but was secretly financed by a friend of Soros, the Ukrainian oligarch Igor Kolomoisky, whose name appeared in the revelations made thanks to the Pandora Papers investigation the world's largest ever journalist collaboration involving more than 600 journalists that unmasked the hidden owners of offshore companies, secret bank accounts, private jets, yachts, mansions, and the precious artworks of a bunch of influential people from the New World Order elite. More than 100 billionaires, 29,000 offshore accounts, 30 current and former leaders, and 300 public officials were named in the first leagues in October of 21 that pushed many governments to launch their own inquiries into the financial activities in the revealed papers. Now we've listened to some samples here. We've heard some information that you're not going to hear in mainstream news. Now I think we'll go over just a few quotes that pertain to times like this. And the first one is Murray Rothbard, and he said, It is in war that the state really comes into its own, swelling in power, in number, in pride, in absolute dominion over the economy and the society. And again, I'm going to re-mention this one. I think I said this one in the first episode. But Dwight Eisenhower said, How far can you go without destroying from within what you are trying to defend from without? And I think that's the point. They're trying to destroy the country by keeping people distracted on these foreign entanglements. It's building debt, it's consolidating power, but it's also providing a smoke screen for other things that are going on here. And people care a lot more about the current outrage than they do about things going on in the background. And those things might even be more important directly to them, but that's just kind of the way things work here. Uh, Bill Watterson says, how come as children we play war and not peace then he says too few role models now here's Robert Kagan a few quotes by him now he is the husband of Victoria Newland we talked about who created PNAC the project for a new American century he is part of the Brookings Institute these two this is the the power couple I would say they belong to all the important groups think tanks, policy institutes, NGOs, foundations. But listen to what he said. Authoritarianism appeals to core elements of the human nature that liberalism does not always satisfy. The desire for order, for strong leadership, and perhaps above all, the yearning for security of family, tribe, and nation. He also said, liberating a people requires the same brutal force as conquering them. Even moral wars have immoral consequences. Neither people nor nations can use the tools of war and coercion and hope to keep their hands clean. The thing I would say is that U.S. power is not eternal. I'm not saying that it won't come to an end because it will. And I fear that it's the gradual enslavement that has come to the people blindly supporting their own parties more than anything else. This is me talking. We've been caught up in this fog of revenge, and it's prevented us from really seeing what's really going on. We can't see the big picture. You know, we see the micro, but not the macro. Remember, again, it's all about strategy, too. And that quote by Orwell was pretty prolific. It said, every war, when it comes, or before it comes, is represented not as a war, but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. And that's exactly what we're being told in the media. There's no reason, there's no background, there's no history. It's just the world against this Hitler number two Putin. And that goes along with the quote by Karl Marx that I kind of paraphrased. It's called the one enemy strategy. He said, a particular social sphere must be identical with the notorious crime of society as a whole. That crime, of course, is Russia bombing Ukraine in such wise that the emancipation of this sphere would appear to be the general self-emancipation, and that's everyone envisioning that Ukraine is being attacked by this brutal dictator, and us sending troops in for World War III is actually defending and freeing ourselves. You understand that? Kind of understand what I'm saying? In order that one class should be the class of emancipation par excellence, another class must, contrarywise, be the class of manifest subjugation. And that is, of course, Russia against the world. The world against Russia. There is a technique here at play, and again, I'm not defending what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but there is so much more that we have learned about in this episode, and I hope it's helped you to kind of understand the situation a little bit more. Again, I don't claim to be an expert. I just wanted to kind of help people to get a grip on what's going on and possibly things that we are not being told in the mainstream media or talk radio, of course, or even on a lot of other podcasts. I ran across another interesting article from January 2022, January 1st, actually. It says, hundreds of Ukrainian nationalists march in honor of Nazi collaborator. Now, in the first part of the episode, we talked about how under Operation Aerodynamic and Operation kapacha the CIA was actually funding and supporting these Nazi militants. And I mentioned that they were called Banderists. And this is where that word or that term Banderist comes from. This guy was a leader in Ukraine and he was a white supremacist type guy. So it says Stephen Bandera led Ukrainian insurgent armies, which fought alongside Nazi Germany during WW2, killing thousands of Jews and Poles. Now, this is from the Times of Israel. Kiev, Ukraine. Hundreds of Ukrainian nationalists held a torchlight march in the capital of Kiev to mark the birthday of Stephen Bandera, the leader of a rebel militia that fought alongside Nazis in World War II. The Sunday march came amid persistently high concerns over Russia's massing of troops near the Ukrainian border, which many believe could be a prelude to an invasion. A large sector of eastern Ukraine has been under the control of Russia-backed separatists since 2014. Today, when there is war with the occupier at the front and the struggle against the fifth column continues in the rear, we remember and honor the memory of Stephen Bandera, said Andrei Tarasenko, leader of the Nationalist Party Right Sector, and we talked about the Right Sector before, too. During World War II, Bandera led a Ukrainian insurgent army whose men killed thousands of Jews and Poles, including women and children, while fighting alongside Nazis against the Red Army and the Communists. Bandera's supporters claimed they sided with the Nazis against the Soviet Army in the belief that Adolf Hitler would grant independence to Ukraine. Expressions of admiration for Bandera. And other collaborators have increased in scope and status since the 2014 revolution in Ukraine, which the State Department was behind as we went over. And that was the one that toppled the regime of Viktor Yanukovych amid claims that he was a Russian stooge, and it triggered an armed conflict with Russia. The veneration of Nazi collaborators, including killers of Jews, is a growing phenomenon in Eastern Europe, where many consider such individuals as heroes because they resisted Soviet communism. So you can look into Stephen Bandera if you wish. That's another little thing that I don't think is getting much play. Why would it, right? Because there's only one side that's being mentioned right now. And if you were fighting communists, one side would say, well, it's totally fine to support the Nazis against the communists, but then one side would say something else. And now we're having people actually on the left supporting right-wingers for fighting whatever type of government you call modern Russia right now. So it's just anything goes, basically. You know, there's no such thing as a bad communist or a bad Nazi if they're doing what you want them to do at a certain time because you can always turn the war back on them later so it's cool we can arm them no problem nothing bad will happen nothing bad will come out of those policies but then it always does and they use those arms to kill innocent people and so you know talking about arming the azov battalion the other very racist battalion who is part of the Ukrainian government now that Facebook has said that's okay to support the Azov battalion while they're fighting the Russians. Now imagine being in the Azov battalion and here comes the U.S. and the NATO countries sending you arms and bullets and god knows what else. You then have the ability to go in and just destroy and murder whoever you want And I'm talking about people of other ethnicities, Jews, Blacks, Hispanics, Russians, whatever it is, because these guys, this Azov Battalion, have been very, very adamant about who they are against. And again, you've got this puppet president, Zelensky, who is Jewish, who has worked with the Azov Battalion. And also his television show was funded by Igor Kolomosky, another Jewish guy they call an oligarch, who gave him... Some say $41 million. And this Kolomowski guy has funded the right sector, the very racist right sector. So it's really, really a tangled web. And we talked about the Pandora Papers a little bit with Leo Zagami's article. But after I read that, I found an article from the Guardian newspaper from 2021. It says revealed, anti-oligarch Ukrainian president's offshore connections. Vladimir Zelensky has railed against politicians hiding wealth offshores, but failed to disclose links to the BVI firm. So he made it his platform to kind of rail against these oligarchs. And it was found out in the Pandora Papers that he had undisclosed stakes in an offshore company, which he appears to have secretly transferred to a friend just weeks before his presidential vote. Zelensky has not commented on this claim despite extensive attempts by The Guardian and its partners to reach him. The files reveal that Zelensky participated in a sprawling network of offshore companies co-owned with his longtime friends and TV business partners. They included Sergei Schaffer, who produced Zelensky's hit shows, and Shaffer's older brother, Boris, who wrote the scripts. Another member of the consortium is Ivan Bakunov, a childhood friend. Bakunov was the general director of Zelensky's production studio, Kvartal 95, spelled K-V-A-R-T-A-L with the number 95. All are associated with Zelensky's hometown in southern Ukraine. After winning power, Zelensky brought these close allies into government. Bakhanov became the head of Ukraine's SBU security agency. Zelensky made Sergei Shafir his first assistant, an unpaid role that involves handling the president's daily schedule. A fourth member of his close-knit group, Andrei Yakalev, is a film director at his studio, Kvartal 95. Now, isn't that funny? These guys jumped on board. One of them is the head of security. They have no experience in such things. The other is his assistant, who's not getting paid. Does anybody believe this bullcrap? Of course not. But, you know, the mainstream media I mean, I'm surprised The Guardian actually talked about it, and the only reason I'm sure they did is because there is a white supremacy kind of vibe to the whole thing. A little bit more. Before becoming president, Zelensky declared some of his private assets. They included cars, property, and three of the co-owned offshore companies. One, Film Heritage, which he held jointly with his wife, Olena, a former Kvartal 95 writer it's registered in Belize. But the Pandora papers show further offshore assets that Zelensky appears not to have revealed. Film Heritage had a 25 percent stake in Devegra, a Cyprus holding company. Devegra in turn owns Multex Multicapital Corporation, a previously unknown entity registered in the tax haven of the British Virgin Islands, or BVI. Zelensky The Shafir brothers and Yakolev each held a 25% stake in Maltex. Zelensky gave his quarter stake in Maltex to Sergei Shafir, documents show. It is unclear if Shafir paid Zelensky. Bakhanov witnessed this secret transfer and signed the offshore papers. This is such BS. Roughly six weeks later, after Zelensky's landslide victory, a lawyer acting for Kvartal 95 signed another document. It stipulated that Maltex would continue to pay dividends to Zelensky's film heritage, even though it no longer owned any stake in the company. Its main revenue comes from activity in Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, according to a Maltex client profile. The Pandora Papers do not indicate whether any dividends were ever paid or their size, nor do they reveal how many payments might have been made. Let's see here. The key document, dated 24th of April, 2019, says Maltex holds shares in companies that produce and distribute TV films. One reason for setting up Maltex was tax-efficient accumulation of business profits. Another, it states, was legal protection. Boris Schaeffer said Bakhanov had mostly set up these offshore financial schemes in order to protect the company from authorities and bandits. Now, it goes on to say that his friend and business partner, Schaeffer, was almost killed. There was an attempt on his life. Not a lot of information about that. In a recent opinion piece for the Atlantic Council, Zelensky said his ultimate goal as president was to destroy the traditional oligarch order and to replace it with a fairer system. Critics, however, say Zelensky has failed to reform the state and embrace the same shadowy ways as his predecessors. EU auditors warned last month that grand corruption and state capture remained widespread in Ukraine. Since entering politics, Zelensky has been dogged by claims he is under the influence of Igor Kolomosky, a billionaire whose TV channel screened Zelensky's TV show. During the campaign, Zelensky's opponents alleged 41 million from Kolomosky entities found its way between 2012 and 2016, into offshore firms belonging to Zelensky and his circle, which included film heritage. Pandora papers show that at least some of the details in the scheme alleged by Poroshenko's party correspond to reality. They show that part of the Kvartal 95 network was managed with help from Fidelity Corporate Services, an offshore consultancy, and one of 14 firms whose documents make up the leak. The files show that Zelensky and his business partners used companies based in the British Virgin Islands, Belize, and Cyprus. The assets held via these offshore companies are wide-ranging. They include real estate in London. Schafer owns two top-end properties, a three-bedroom apartment in an Edwardian mansion block in Regent's Park, bought in 2016 for $1.575 million another three-bedroom flat in nearby Baker Street, opposite the Sherlock Holmes Museum, and purchased for $2.2 million, according to land registry records. Meanwhile, Yakolev's British Virgin Island Company, Candlewood Investments, owns a luxury flat in a Victorian mansion block in Artillery Row, Westminster. The properties were acquired around the same time Zelensky's show was turned into a feature film and recommissioned for a second series. It is unclear if the Three Flats are let out or used on an occasional basis. A Russian company that builds itself as an individual service for high-status clients manages them. Zelensky's apparent business connections to Russia via Maltex are likely to prove controversial, but apparently not controversial enough to prevent him from being elected. Such wild information, such wild history, guys. It's just blowing my mind. It took me a while to get this episode out. I do apologize for that sound in there. I'm wearing this jacket, this nylon jacket, and it's actually making some noises I didn't realize that it was making in the mic. So, many apologies for that. So, we've learned a ton here. I hope that this has helped you guys to kind of get a better kind of view on what's been going on. We know in times of war, it's the time where propaganda is really ramped up. You know, we hear about the ghost of Kiev, and then we heard that that was not true. We heard about the Ukrainian model posing with the gun, and then that wasn't true. We heard that Russia was targeting nukes, and that wasn't true. You know, there's this hospital controversy. Russia supposedly bombed a maternity ward, and if that's true, that's absolutely horrible. But I'll just remind people that our government has done that several times, quite a few times over the years in different countries and different theaters. And as recent as bombing the Doctors Without Borders Hospital, which didn't get very much outrage, and it should have, But, you know, when a Democrat's in office, the outrage just is never as much. And also, there have been reports in the foreign press that the maternity hospital that Russia supposedly bombed, and I believe they did bomb it, well, the patients had been run out of the hospital, and it had been taken over by the Azov battalion. So... Who knows what's true at this point, but I think we at least need to stay open-minded about what's going on and not just take one side or the other without having plenty of information and evidence. Now, let's kind of look over some of the things that we have learned, okay? Firstly, we've kind of learned that the deep state from the U.S. has been inside Ukraine since the 50s. We've learned that george soros and the open society foundation have been funding different entities in ukraine since the 90s and i actually read after i recorded this show that it was over 150 billion dollars so far then of course he just added another 25 million and he said his goal was 100 million now he's also a big funder of the atlantic council which works hand in hand with nato and on the board of directors of the McCain Institute, which has numerous CFR members and donors connected to the military-industrial complex. We learned that the U.S. State Department, under Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton, overthrew the president of Ukraine in 2014 and replaced him with one of their central banker shills. We learned that Vladimir Zelensky is connected to the oligarch Igor Kolomoisky. He's received plenty of funding from him, And we know that Kolomovsky has funded the right sector militants. We know that Zelensky promised to get rid of the oligarchs. And what did he do? Well, he had numerous offshore accounts and a scam going. We learned that Ukraine has a real Nazi militant problem and a Nazi past. And its government has Nazis in it as we speak. We learned that the U.S. and NATO countries are giving these Nazis weapons. I've learned recently that radical Muslim rebels are now in Ukraine, supposedly helping the Ukrainian government. We learned that Ukraine is the fourth largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid in the region. We learned that the National Endowment for Democracy is a CIA front geared towards foreign regime change, according to Ray McGovern and others. We know the Winston Churchill quote that, In war, the truth is so important, it should be guarded by a body of lies. And in the words of General MacArthur, who headed up the Korean War for Truman, and what was the thanks that he got from actually starting to win the war? Well, Truman fired him, because Truman was controlled by the CFR and the global elite, and it's not really about winning the war not at least since World War II. It's about getting involved in the war, getting in the entanglement, causing the destruction. You're able to rise up debt, get money for rebuilding, make all these loans. You're also able to take freedom away from the people at home. Then you get the sphere of influence. And these bankers and these big corporatists and the people in government who are invested in the corporations get to put their businesses in these countries, or take their minerals, or do whatever that they want to do. Well, after Truman kicked MacArthur out, MacArthur started looking into things a little bit deeper and had a change of heart. He said, our government has kept us in a perpetual state of fear, kept us in a continuous stampede of patriotic fervor, with the cry of grave national emergency, Always there has been some terrible evil at home or some monstrous foreign power that was going to gobble us up if we did not blindly rally behind it by furnishing the exorbitant funds demanded. Yet, in retrospect, these disasters seem to never have happened, seem to never have been quite real. He also said, I'm concerned for the security of our great nation, not so much because of any threat from without but because of the insidious forces working from within. And that was that global network of CFR globalists and other types, like the Atlantic Council and the different NGOs and foundations who get their guys inside of government. And lastly, he said, it is part of the general pattern of misguided policy that our country is now geared to an arms economy which was bred in an artificially induced psychosis of war hysteria and nurtured upon an incessant propaganda of fear. Well, guys, I think I've said about all I can say on this subject. I think we are at the end of the line. I want to thank you once again for listening. I hope that you've got something out of this. Maybe go back and take some notes and tell some of your friends the true history of Ukraine and help them to understand a little bit more about what's been going on there for the last, oh, 30 years or more. I really appreciate it. You know, they'll either give us or even manufacture an enemy that is GovCorp. So they have the excuse to fight them and they can justify any actions towards defeating them. That's what becomes the main goal. So no amount of spending is off limits. No sacrifice here at home is too great in the name of their victory. But their victory is not our victory the pattern can be seen all throughout modern history if you just take the time to kind of look around and see beyond the GovCorp propaganda and I know that many people listening to this know this is true and they can see it so that being the case please share the show it helps give me a good rating if you choose to do so on whatever platform you're listening to this on tell people about it word of mouth is great and I want to thank my friends at Alternate Current Radio. Please check out their website. It's a brand new website, alternatecurrentradio.com. I want to thank John Brisson from We've Read the Documents and his wonderful YouTube page. I want to also thank Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show. Last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting me. And if you got something out of this show, then please think about becoming a member of the Society of Cryptic Savants, or the co-conspirator level, or become a producer. And you can check out the different levels and what you get by going to patreon.com forward slash theoddmanout. So consider being a member and supporting the Oddcast. It helps very much because... Right now I am in the middle of trying to save up to buy a new computer so I can actually continue the podcast without any interference, have enough room, and not have constant technological malfunctions like I've been having here lately. So anyway, love you guys. See you soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.
3: Assuming that uh, um, uh, there is a new government and a a new prosecutor general, uh, I am prepared to do a public signing of the
0: commitment for the billion dollars. Congratulations on installing the new prosecutor general. It's going to be critical for him to work quickly to repair the damage that Shokin did. and I'm a man of my word, I, uh, and that now that the new prosecutor general's in place, we're ready to move forward in signing that new $1 billion loan
1: guarantee. The Biden family and Ukraine. John Solomon joins me now. His team filed the Freedom of Information Act request and found some memos that changed the entire story from the Biden camp. All right, John, what have
3: you found? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Hunter Biden, his business partner, Devin Archer, and their legal lobbying team in America for the company Burisma, a Ukrainian-owned company, had VIP access to the top of the State Department. Hunter Biden talks to Tony Blinken, the deputy secretary, uh, on a couple occasions. That's very significant. Blinken is the closest national c- security advisor Joe Biden had during his time in the White House. Hunter Biden himself talked Directly. to John Kerry's guy? Yes, the deputy secretary, and before he was John Kerry's guy, he was Joe Biden's guy. A very important, significant uh, contact. Then Devin Archer, his fellow Burisma board member, was talking to John Kerry directly. But the most significant contact occurs in late February of 2016. That's when Burisma's legal team, an American legal team, brought in to help this Ukrainian gas company try to overcome these corruption allegations. They go to the State Department, to the number three official, Under Secretary Novatelli, and they specifically demand that the State Department help end these corruption allegations against Burisma. And when they do it, they invoke Hunter Biden's name. They say, you need to help us because Joe, uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, there it is. is on the board. Uh, it's I mean, the and that's why example. you put
1: Hunter Biden
3: on the board. That's, that's exactly why you right. do it. So it's right. like a
1: protection deal. Um, a- all right. So this was not known before. And this was never discussed. And now we know from the memos that you've uncovered, this has been documented, that this Ukraine company, Burisma, natural gas, a lot of corrupt allegations over there, uh, owned by Russian oligarch, they lobbied the Obama administration hard to stop the corruption investigations into them inside Ukraine. Is that what we have?
3: One hundred percent. And they played the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden card in doing so. And it's very important to understand what precipitated this approach. February 2016, beginning of the Democratic primaries, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump being set up for the fall election. All of a sudden, the Ukrainian prosecutor, Shokin, raids the home of Hunter Biden's boss, the owner uh, of Boris Burisma Holdings, a guy named Zolchesky, that Ukrainian oligarch you just mentioned. They raid that home. They take the man's possessions and his goods and his documents, his favorite luxury car. In early February 16, after two years of quiet, there's panic inside Burisma that maybe Hunter Biden isn't buying us the protection that we had because the Ukrainians are closing in on the on the boss. And it is that event that precipitates uh... the uh... legal team going to the state department saying you gotta help us get rid of these corruption allegations a very important time sequence for people to understand that
1: timelines critical so the prosecutor raids the home of the owner of burisma right panic sets in burisma hires a lobbying team to lobby hard the obama administration get rid of this prosecution get rid of these corruption allegations right then The next thing that happens, Joe Biden goes over there and says, fire the prosecutor. Well, you know what? We have the tape. Let's play the tape.
0: We're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. Uh, I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a
1: (laughs) got fired. I mean, when you see the whole thing come into perspective, it yeah. changes the entire Biden defense. 30 seconds. It,
3: it does. And let me just tell you one other thing. The day that that prosecutor was fired, that same American legal team, they've been lobbying the State Department. They show up in Ukraine asking to meet the replacement prosecutor right away. Let's make this thing go away. These events were tied together in ways that Joe Biden has not been willing to admit.